This is the Employee Experience in Education podcast, the teacher retention podcast for school leaders, and I'm your host, Eric Brainstetter. In this podcast, we'll speak with educational leaders, former educators, and industry experts to better understand the employee experience in education. Our goal is to equip school leaders with realistic and actionable strategies to keep more teachers in the classroom. On this episode, we'll speak with doctoral candidate and former educator Nicole Ensley. Today, Nicole shares her unique insights and research on how school and district leaders can improve teacher satisfaction and combat teacher turnover. Nicole also discusses how Frederick Hertzberg's two-factor theory of motivation applies to education, the impact of relationships and teacher agency on the employee experience, and a surprising truth about what truly motivates teachers to stay in the profession. Nicole, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm excited about the conversation and to hear about your own research into teacher retention and teacher motivation. But before we get to that, do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and who should be paying attention today? Well, thank you for having me. It's such an honor to be part of this project. Um, I am Nicole Ensley. I've been um, in education since, I, I guess, since birth. <laughs> but, um, you know, I have um, over 10 years experience in the classroom, several years of experience at um, the state education agency level. And I've kind of taken all of that experience um, been set, moved around a couple of states, so I kind of have a broad overview. So I've kind of taken all of that into my research and um, have really looked at what are the effects of the pandemic on teachers and teacher retention, and um, what can we do about that? And so I think this conversation might be beneficial most for um, district leaders who are struggling with teacher retention, because um, I have some maybe unique ways of looking at teacher retention that if you've tried everything else, this might be you're like, why not? <laughs> um, and then it's and that's probably everybody, everybody. Yes. <laughs> um, and state leaders too. If uh, state leaders are grappling with um, the teacher retention crisis, um, several states have kind of launched, um, you know, some projects and um, dashboards to really kind of uncover what's going on statewide. Uh, so that this would apply to them too. Yeah, great. So I'd like to start with the research that you're doing. So you're in the final stages of your dissertation, and congratulations for that. It's been a, a, a lot of work, I'm sure, a lot of tears and heartache and some bloodshed in there probably as well. Um, and for like sure. you said, yeah, you've been researching teacher turnover. I'm curious, why did you start by researching that topic? Why was that your area of focus? It kind of started because I was looking, I figured if I'm going to write a dissertation, I'm going to be so invested, I'm going to spend all this time, it needs to be something that I'm interested in and I have a passion for. And I'm one of the, I, I'm, I'm a statistic. I'm one of the teachers that left during the pandemic. Um, and so I feel like that was kind of the jumping point. I said, why don't I look at this experience and see like what, what else is there? Um, so I started doing some research for one of my psychology classes actually, and um, started looking at motivation theories and the connection between post-disaster um, settings and how that impacted employee turnover, particularly teachers. I mean, I really started getting into that. And I said, you know what, there might be something here that there's definitely something that we can be learn, something that we can learn from this disaster of a pandemic. How can we kind of compare that to maybe previous um, natural disasters and things that, while not might not be on the same magnitude, we can still glean some ideas and kind of look at some trends and see how we can kind of compare. Mm -hmm. 
So can you give kind of a, a quick summary of some of the research that you found, maybe what was surprising to you, what maybe being a statistic yourself, what was not surprising to you as well? One of the things that surprised me most in looking at that connection between um, teacher turnover in a post-disaster situation was that teachers don't quit right away. And I was one that quit right away. I had unique circumstances, but teachers don't leave in immediately after a um, disaster. Um, and some of that is that survival mode that teachers get placed in during a disaster, um, where a lot of times the schools are providing the um, part of the community cleanup and um, community resources, and the school is most likely the hub for the entire community. And so teachers are part of that and they're actively making sure that their students are okay. And so they're invested in making sure that, you know, the students recover, that the community recovers, that everybody gets through it. And it's not until months later, um, a lot of the research points to at least six or nine months later, that teachers really start feeling that burnout. And, um, and that's when teachers are finally saying, hey, it's, now it's time to maybe look at some other options. Um, and when that level of emergency and that burnout and that stress is sustained over a couple of years, like we've seen with the pandemic, that's when you start to see um, start to see the teachers fall. And this, um, a lot of research is coming out that the 2021-2022 year is the year that broke teachers and principals. And that's when um, the rates just skyrocketed. I mean, historically, we've had about 4% turnover since 1980s. And... Um, for teachers. And in 2021-2022 school year, uh, that number jumped up to 10% uh, for teachers and I believe 16% for principals. Um, and it was much higher in low-income schools. It was almost double in low-income schools. Yeah. And what what's fascinating to me is the, you said six to nine months later after that initial, whatever the event is, they start to feel burnout. So what happens in that first six to nine months? Is it just kind of business as usual, but things are kind of have this compounding effect to them? Or maybe another way of, of phrasing that question is, at what point do they realize that what I'm experiencing now is this burnout that I've been, because of all the factors I've been experiencing? That's a great question. Um, and it's something that kind of the, the research community hasn't quite grappled with. Um, the best connection that I found um, was a researcher in New Zealand. They had some very catastrophic earthquakes, um, the Christchurch earthquakes. And in the period after that, they the researchers really connected what the teachers went through to um, first responders. And they made the connection that um, teachers are, are operating like a first responder in the aftermath of, you know, in that case, it was an earthquake, but in the aftermath of any disaster, the teachers are in that first responder mode where it's, um, where your brain just kind of takes over and says, here's all the things we need to do. We need to make sure, you know, uh, phys physiological safety and water and, you know, that everybody is like taken care of. And, um, but when teachers are forced to provide for their students and provide that care and mental health, um, support in addition to their own and nobody's kind of refilling their bucket, that's when, that's when the burnout sets in. Um, you could only give so much to your students and to the community. And if nothing, if you're not getting anything, your personal needs met, that's when the burnout sets in. Mm -hmm. 
And I know uh, another part of your research was on Frederick Hertzberg's two-factor theory of motivation. And I'm curious, can you kind of describe that a little bit? And are there any parallels to the disaster recovery and this idea of motivation, job satisfaction, job dissatisfaction? Great question. So Herzberg became popular in the 60s when he made this groundbreaking revelation that employee motivation is um, kind of two separate arenas. And so you have employee satisfaction and employee dissatisfaction, and that the two are not um, connected. So for example, um, there's factors that can provide you job satisfaction and job motivation. Those are the factors that are going to keep you retained. Um, then on the other hand, you can have dissatisfaction. And so there's a variety of things that can cause an employee dissatisfaction in the workplace. Um, for example, low pay, um, added duties, um, poor working conditions. And if, um, if that, like employees can handle more dissatisfaction, right? So you'll see, you'll commonly see people in staying in jobs that they're dissatisfied with, right? The, the pay is terrible hello, teaching, right? <laughs> uh, the pay is terrible. There's added duties. You're not, you're giving up nights and weekends. The teachers deal with this, all this dissatisfaction. But what keeps teachers in the profession is the satisfaction, right? So you can have a ton of dissatisfaction, still remain employed. But um, what's keeping the teachers in the profession that are there is because they're able to gain a large sense of job satisfaction. And that's what motivates them to stay. Um, and so that's things like relationships with um, the students and internal satisfaction, personal growth. Um, and a lot of it is intrinsic factors. And so it's not something that hmm. an employer can necessarily provide outright and easily like, here's some more money. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. So the the, the dissatisfaction, that's those are called hygiene factors. Is that right? Yes. And you had mentioned a couple. It's salary, job security, work environment, company policies, company reputation. Some of those are controllable. Some of those aren't necessarily controllable. So when schools can't really decide too much on salaries, there's some amount of, of wiggle room that school leaders have, but that's kind of outside of the control. Mm -hmm. um, job security is mostly dependent on performance of the employee, but also you know the funding that's available a work environment, company policy. So some of those things schools can control. What what I'm really curious about is the motivational factors, the other half of that. So you said that job satisfaction and job dissatisfaction are not on the same continuum. It's not like there's one line and you're either satisfied or you're dissatisfied or somewhere in the middle. These are two very distinct ways of operating. Is that right? Yes. So the optimum would be for an employee to have low dissatisfaction and high satisfaction, right? That's like, that's the optimum. But what we're really looking at most of the time, you know, in modern day is most people are moderately dissatisfied, right? I mean, there's always something you can grumble about and that's just life, right? No, no job is ever going to be perfect. So we're dealing with people that are mostly fairly dissatisfied, right? There's some things that they're dissatisfied with, but what's keeping people in their jobs is the level of satisfaction. And so that's where district leaders should focus their time is how can we increase job satisfaction and job motivation for employees? Um, and it might be a little more difficult because some of those things are specific to employees. It's internal satisfaction. How can you create that? It's not going to be cheap or easy. Yeah. Do you have any suggestions for that? And I, I know that's a huge question, but when I think about some of the motivational factors, you know, it's 
recognition and creativity and independence and autonomy and agency. Like there's a lot of things there that if I reflect back as my time as a school building administrator, I could either empower my people or I could kind of micromanage my people. So that's one continuum perhaps. And those are definitely the motivational factors, but things like recognition, we talk on the podcast a lot about how teachers want to feel heard, supported. They want to feel recognized for the work that they're doing. And that is that simply a, Hey, Nicole, I really appreciate how you did X, Y, and Z. Is that enough? For the teachers that I interviewed, um, it seemed like it was enough when it came from their immediate supervisors and it was genuine, right? So that recognition from an immediate supervisor, in this case, it was their principal or assistant principal. um, If it was kind of immediate and genuine, they really appreciated that. And odds are their principal probably doesn't even remember the three minute or three second conversation in passing in the hallway, but that teacher does. You know, they remember when they were at their lowest during the pandemic and the principal popped by and said, hey, you know, thanks for that, you know, thing that you helped out with at lunch yesterday. That was super appreciative. Um, you know, it takes three seconds for the principal to do that, but it makes a world of difference uh, to the teacher. Yeah, interesting. I know I had a colleague recently and she led a meeting, did a fantastic job. I sent her a Slack message afterwards and said, hey, I just appreciate the way that you led that meeting. That was fantastic. And she responded right away with exclamation marks. And she was excited about this. And I, I didn't think much of it whenever I sent the message. It was literally just, I, I see you and I value the work that you're doing. And I value you as a person, but I know it was meaningful. And then in my mind, I said, am I not doing this often enough? Even though I, I'm leading a podcast on the employee experience on what it's like to work in an environment and helping people feel heard, supported, and valued. I know I'm missing those times, um, not intentionally, obviously, but I know I'm missing times when I should just recognize my colleagues, my peers, the people that I'm working with and saying, you know, job well done. And it doesn't take much time. You'd mentioned three seconds, five seconds, just a simple, genuine sharing of appreciation for one of those motivational factors that increases job satisfaction. Therefore, the likelihood of that person staying is higher because of a five second comment that I made. Yes. And how as a district, how could you, how could a district leader kind of make that just part of the normal culture, right? This could be a free, this could be a free solution that could have implications that just kind of roll over. But you have to set that up as district leader or state leader or building leader. Like, how are we going to be a culture of appreciating each other genuinely, right? Um, Mm. Because I, I did interview one teacher that said, you know, they were a little um, frustrated and um, off-put by just blanket emails that central office would send out um, during the pandemic, like, thanks for all that you do. Um, and those kind of insincere blanket things that just got sent to all teachers um, from central office that, you know, perhaps that central office person had never been in a classroom or had never visited any of the school sites that year. And for them to just say, thanks for everything that you do, um, was just ingenuine and off-putting to, to the teachers. I bet. Yeah. So then if I'm a school leader then, and I'm thinking about, you know, recognition being one example that we're kind of sticking to right now, do I, I, I could think of it as I've checked the box because I've shared an email to my staff saying, thank you. But there's also this idea of it has to be frequent enough it can't be too frequent because it loses its value, 
but you have to say it often enough. So it has to be top of mind. How do you think school leaders should approach this idea of recognition and staying genuine, but also having it be frequent enough that everybody is hearing something? I think it needs to be ingrained into the culture. And so we can all think back to a school or a place that we've worked at where the culture was just toxic. Um, And so how do you build that culture as a building leader or a district leader? Um, You know, what rituals are you going to instill? Right. So maybe every time we have a staff meeting, we start by celebrating each other or, um, you know, one person will share out, you know, and thank three people or it's got to be something that makes sense for your building, your community. Um, You know, for example, I was a I was a administrator for a while at a state agency and we always started our team meetings with kudos and it would be just a couple minutes at the beginning of each staff meeting where folks had a chance to just thank anybody else on the team for anything, personal, professional, um, anything. And it was weird at first, right? Everybody was like, hmm, I don't know about this. <laughs> um, but as we practiced it consistently and I led by example, we were able to um, just create a culture where we were just constantly giving kudos where it was due. And it wasn't cheesy. It wasn't over the top. It was just you know, recognition in front of the whole team, like, Hey, thanks for dropping that project you were working on to help me out of a bind real quick. I truly appreciate that. Just quick, easy, Mm -hmm. ingrained into our culture. Yeah. What about something like um, staff agency or independence or empowerment? I I know that it'll come back to the culture, obviously, and creating a culture where teachers Mm -hmm. feel independent and have agency. What did you, did you come up with anything to help with that idea of independence? Because a lot of the teachers that have been on the podcast. And I, I took the lens of, you know, why did you leave or some of the, the environmental factors? What, what could these leaders do that creates agency, that creates empowerment of teachers? Because that is one of those motivational factors that increases job satisfaction. That was actually, um, from the results that I found with the teachers I interviewed, um, relationships was most important to them, but right behind that was agency. Um, they wanted a say in the important decisions. And I think the pandemic really highlighted that. It really highlighted, mm-hmm. um, you know, how much control maybe the school board has, and maybe teachers weren't aware of that, um, how much control the public and the parents have, um, and how it can sway school board members and how that directly impacts your classroom and your policies. And I think prior to the pandemic, we just, teachers just weren't aware of that. Maybe not, maybe some, but, you know, in general. And so what I kept hearing from the teachers that stayed and thrived during the pandemic is that um, their principal gave them autonomy and independence and trusted them to carry out their tasks. Um, I I mostly interviewed teachers that had been, I think the average tenure was 13 years. So they were um, teachers perhaps that could be trusted, right? Like a first year teacher, you probably want to check on them a lot more frequently, especially during the pandemic. That was crazy time. Um, But these teachers were seasoned. They knew what they were doing. Um, You know, they had tenure in the district. And so they just valued the principal trusting them um, and saying, Hey, I'm here as a resource. If you need anything, let me know. I'll help you out. Um, What they didn't appreciate was central office taking away their agency And so if the central office came in and said, um, hey, we're no longer allowing iPads for um, third grade and up, um, and then you have a teacher that has a two, three combo class, 
and they're saying, hey, wait, so I can only use iPads for my second graders, but not the third graders in my class. And um, I I can't imagine what it was like to be a district office leader at this point, but they, um, you know, the district office held the line and they said, absolutely not. Um, And so decisions like that, where uh, teachers autonomy to the point of you can't use this particular type of technology or these platforms or these websites that you've spent all of your time and money creating resources for. Um, And that was kind of put out the window during the pandemic due to blanket decisions that teachers had no say in. Um, And I think district leaders have an opportunity to control those types of things. Um, There's always a reason for everything, but why can't exceptions be made, right? Why can't we involve teachers in that process? Why can't we leave it up to the building principal? Can the building principal be the one that decides um, you know, central office might not know how many two, three combo classes there are, but I bet you the building principal does. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. So was there kind of a, an equation for the two factor theory motivation? Is there a certain amount of job dissatisfaction that everybody can tolerate? Is there a certain amount of job satisfaction everybody's looking for? Does it vary by person to person? So the general consensus is that you want low dissatisfaction, high satisfaction. Um, And so there's kind of four different combinations that employees can have. Uh, But ideally, as a building or district leader, what you're going to want is uh, the lowest dissatisfaction that you can have with the highest satisfaction. Um, And there's really no threshold. I think it kind of varies um, person to person. Um, It certainly varies industry to industry. Uh, And I think teachers and nurses, historically, with a lot of the research that have used Herzberg's two-factor theory, um, teachers and nurses generally um, have the most dissatisfaction, but as long as their satisfaction bucket is full, then um, you know they're going to keep plugging along until until they get burnt out. <laughs> and then, yeah, is the is the level of of tolerance for dissatisfaction is that consistent for a person over time, or does that fluctuate as well? Or maybe the opposite of that would be. If I'm a teacher, are my motivational factors always the same or do they vary based on timing of the school year, personal health? How dynamic or static are those? Uh, they're constantly changing. And that's what makes it difficult for um, district and school leaders, right? Because you have to constantly adapt and change and know that different groups of teachers are going to have different things that satisfy them, right? Somebody that's young and uh, first year, second year teacher what matters to them is going to be vastly different than what matters to um, a teacher that's close to retirement. Um, The state of Alaska just did a uh, study where they looked at um, basically every teacher, anybody that had ever been licensed as a teacher in the state or was currently teaching um, got sent a survey and uh, it's just tons of data came in. And what they noticed is that pay and money was more important to the younger teachers um, those just starting out um, and things like school culture, climate and working conditions were more um, valuable and important to those teachers that were closer to retirement. Yeah, that's fascinating, especially when you start to look at and kind of segment your teachers and say, you know, here, here's a population of teacher, whether it's demographics, mm-hmm. whether it's how many years they've been teaching. How do I then as a leader, knowing I have we'll say between 20 and 150 people in my building, depends on if it's a small, maybe parochial school or a rural school versus a more of an urban setting, high population. How is it possible for me to really understand 
the motivational factors and then the job dissatisfaction factors for my teachers? How, how can I manage all of that? I think what I would recommend is um, doing some type of survey and it, it doesn't need to be fancy. I mean, there are like school climate connectedness surveys. I mean, there's tons of like surveys that you could buy um, and you could administer. But I think if you've got a small enough staff and it's manageable for you and you have the time, design your own survey. Um, obviously, you want to look at some of the ones that exist that have that have persevered for years and to see, you know, what types of things are being asked and, you know, how can I modify that for my community and my building? But really, um, a good building leader is going to have a sense of, in general, what are everybody's strongest gripes, right? Because that principal's door is just open and close all day long, right? People are, people are not shy. Teachers are like the least shy. They will come in and they will tell you <laughs> what is wrong. <laughs> yes. um, even if it's not affecting them, it's affecting others. They will tell you. So principals probably have a general idea. These are the things that are dissatisfying to my teachers, but does it represent the entire building? No, there are some teachers, especially the ones that don't have tenure. They're not going to come in and complain. So what kind of anonymous survey can you send out that's really going to get everybody's perspective? Can you hire a consultant? Can you pay somebody to do some interviews with your staff to administer the survey for you so that folks are folks feel like they can give true and honest opinions, right? Um, just because we say it's an anonymous survey, you know, sometimes teachers are like, well, my IP address can be tracked and, you know, the tech guys can... Oh. <laughs> um, but, you know, so how can you really make sure that you're, you know, that your, that your teachers trust you, that they trust that it's anonymous, that they feel comfortable giving that feedback? You're not going to be able to measure satisfaction through a survey, but you can measure that dissatisfaction, right? And that's, you can control and maybe lessen some of that dissatisfaction. Um, you might be able to gauge in general what motivates your teachers, but again, that's going to be all across the board. So how can you infuse um, things like giving teachers professional courtesy, agency, um, good, a good culture and climate? How can you infuse that into the culture of the school? Um, and it's going to be hard work and it's going to be tedious. And for the first year, you might feel like it's not having any effect at all. Um, but that building that culture, that's what's going to sustain. And district leaders, mm -hmm. how can you support your principals and keeping them in the position that they're in so that they have multiple years so that they can build that culture. Yeah. I think a lot too, it comes back to relationships. You know, you, you'd mentioned that earlier in the conversation mm -hmm. where it takes a lot of time, effort and energy to build relationships, especially as a new administrator going into a school, because so many times it's the pragmatics of school. It's the schedule. It's like all the things that have to be checked off a list it's the angry parent, like the list just goes on and on and on. But when you develop relationships, you're able to really understand what people's wants, likes and needs are. Like how, how, are, how am I able to manage, you know, my people's expectations? Do I know what they expect from me? You could do surveys, but you can also just get out and talk to people. And the more that you build relationships, the more mm -hmm. likely there is to be a trusting relationship which means the teachers are more likely to really confide in you and let you know, you know, I'm not doing well today mentally, physically, socially, whatever that is. So building those relationships, I think are critical and it's easy to stay in the office and get all the stuff done that you need to do and not visit classrooms and not walk the halls. But that visibility, I think is a huge part of, of increasing job satisfaction as well for teachers. 
Yeah. And how can district leaders help in this situation? Can district leaders provide extra administrative staff? Um, right. Because you mentioned, you know, sometimes it's hard to go out and build those relationships and check in with your teachers because you're stuck doing all of the administrative work that keeps you chained to your desk. To what extent can central office alleviate that? Um, and I know everybody's going to say, well, we don't have the money. We don't have the money. We don't have money for, you know, another principal or somebody to help with administrative tasks. But you, I just, I always come back to this book that I read and I, I don't even remember the full name, but it was something like, if you don't feed the teachers, they'll eat you for breakfast or, or something like that. Um, and that just, it sticks with me because I, there's, you know, TikTok went crazy during the pandemic, right? Everybody was on TikTok. Um, teachers were on TikTok. Principals were on TikTok. And I fell down the rabbit hole. And I remember this one principal um, that he said he took his, like, he put everything on a rolling cart and he just went through. It was right when everybody came back, you know, after after being sequestered for forever. Everybody came back and it was nuts, right? Some people were still virtual. Some people were in the classroom. Teachers were great. Like, it was just it was nuts. He had a little rolling cart and it had all of his principal stuff on it. And he was going and he shut and locked his door. He said, I'm not going in that office for the rest of the school year. And it was true. He did. He had a walkie talkie, a radio, a cell phone, like everything. And he made it his mission. He was just going to go up and down the hall and he just checked in on each teacher. He said, how are you doing today? How are you doing this period? What do you need? Yeah. Yeah. I'll watch your class. You can go to the bathroom. Um, like that's what we need. We need teacher helpers, right? We need somebody that's going to come in um, so you don't feel like you're on an island stuck in a classroom with kids that behaviors have got, gotten worse, right? Behaviors are off the charts right now. Um, violence is increased. Um, teachers are stressed. Um, and so can we have a people helper? Can we have a teacher helper that just goes, checks in on teachers, does a temperature check, a pulse check? Hey, what do you need? Yeah, let me get that for you. I'll run up and grab that. Oh, you need somebody to take this kid out? Yeah, I'll, I'll take him out to the hall. We'll chat. Um, that's what we need. Yeah, fascinating. I want to transition a little bit and get more into the conversations that you had with teachers. So part of your dissertation was yeah. speaking with current educators that chose to stay instead of chose to leave. What what kind of, of I know you mentioned before agency being part of this, relationships being part of this. What are the kind of big picture takeaways that you have from those conversations? So relationships was one of the things that um, was surprising to me and to the research. So according to Herzberg, relationships are technically a dissatisfier, right? And so um, relationships, according to him, were not something that would motivate or satisfy an employee. They were, you know, to be managed as levels of dissatisfaction. But every teacher I talked to said that, like, they derived a huge source of satisfaction uh, from their relationships um, with their principal, with their students, and with the parents in the community. Um, those relationships were paramount to them. And if many of the teachers talked about how they felt an obligation, they were they felt obligated to their principal. They saw their principal um, overworked and overstressed in ways they'd never seen before. And so they felt obligated to not make the situation worse. Um, they, uh, they didn't, there was one, one teacher that said he legitimately did not quit because he couldn't bear to place that extra, um, stress on his principal. Um, and then the teachers that said they thought about quitting during the height of the pandemic, it was because, um, 
they didn't have those in-person relationships with the students. Um, one teacher told me that she had typed out her letter. She knew that the board was um, going to take her teaching certificate away. They were going to pursue that. Um, the board was very vocal about re- revoking certificates. She said she was prepared to do that because trying to teach online, um, first grade online was just, she said, that's not, she said, I'll, I'll be a waitress before I do that um, again. And so right when she was at her breaking point is when students were allowed back um, into the building um, and she was able to build those relationships and bonds. Um, first grade, she said, was was tough because they went home, they missed the end of kindergarten um, and they were, they started first grade at home. Um, and she said it was hit or miss how many you'd get in a day because a first grader can't log on <laughs> virtually yeah. by themselves. Um, so that it was too much stress. Um, but once she was able to get back in person and have those meaningful in-person relationships um, that she was able to bounce back and, you know, her satisfaction tank was refilled. And so she was able to get some more satisfaction, more motivation to continue. Um, and then she made it a mission to figure out how to um, make it better, right? She said that first year was rough because those first graders didn't have relationships with each other, with her. Um, and so that rest of the year was, it was just her her project to make sure those kids felt connected and safe. So she went from even thinking waitress would be better than this to kind of rededicating mm-hmm. herself and that's based on the relationships. So when the kids came back together, they were in person. It was the relationships that she was building. It was those relationships with her students that kept her there. Is that yep. right? Isn't that powerful? It is. Yeah. What about relationships with colleagues and peers? How how strong did that come out in the interviews? That was um, that was very powerful. And I think most people talked about how during the pandemic, you didn't quite realize how much you relied on your coworkers until you didn't have them there. Um, and so that was a powerful realization for the teachers that, you know, a lot of times teachers say, hey, I, I feel like I'm an island. Um, but during the pandemic, they realized they weren't, in fact, an island, right? They, they relied on their coworkers more than they knew. One teacher talked about how she opened up she converted her garage into um, like a makeshift office for herself and one other teacher. It was a brand new teacher. Um, this would have been her second year um, when in 2020, when, you know, that first school year started and everybody was still remote. Um, so she's she a brand new teacher. Um, she didn't have reliable internet at her house. And so she was really struggling to figure out how she was going to teach virtually. She had never taught virtually. She'd barely even taught in person. Um, so this older teacher, um, and I mean, she, she, she's self-described as older. She said, I could have retired 10 years ago, but I chose not to. So she converted her garage into like a little mini office and um, invited that teacher. They both agreed to kind of be in each other's safe bubble. Um, and so you remember back like the early days of the pandemic, you had your bubble. Well, they were in each other's bubble and um, they helped each other out. And she said such a strong relationship formed from that because they would then start um, taking lunch break together. And that's not something you normally do when you're a teacher, right? You don't normally get a lunch break, (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. but they started cooking together and um, just bonding and providing that source of comfort for each other. Um, And they're still great friends now. Um, And that's just a power of how close, um, you know, the pandemic brought Mm -hmm. us. 
Yeah. Are there any other stories that stick out with these with teachers before we move on to the next kind of set of questions? I did talk to one teacher that um, she was a special ed teacher and she um, her relationships with her paraprofessionals was so strong. Um, And one of her paraprofessionals actually Mm -hmm. died of covid um, during the pandemic. And they thought it they could trace it back to a case that was from the classroom. Um, and she said that she don't think she, like she's ever going to recover from that. Um, and something that she wished that school and district leaders would have done is, yeah, they gave her a sub immediately, right? Like, of course, you know, let's fill the position with a sub, make sure that there's still coverage. But she said there was no um, emotional or mental health support for herself or her students. That was a big loss for the students as well. Mm. Um, and so, you know, how can we change that going forward? Um, how can we infuse a little more mental health care and support as we, as you know, as we learn and grow and learn from the pandemic? Yeah. Bring that humanity back. Right. The, mm-hmm. we're, it's, it's a, a people business, you know, students come in, they're not just students, not just children, they're people, you know, there's somebody's prized possession. There's somebody at home that loves them, someone at school that loves them. The adults are the same way. There are multiple people that love them. And it's easy to forget that and just kind of think about, again, the business part of school, but there's the entire 95% of the rest of it, which is the most important part. And that's, you know, these are people, it's humanity. It's, it's human beings on the other side of the conversation. Yeah. Maybe that's our mission going forward for education reform. You know, let's bring the humanity back. Yeah. So I have a couple of other questions, not to just pull away from that, that part of the conversation. But one thing I'm interested in is the COVID relief money and how a lot of COVID relief money went towards teacher stipends. Oftentimes it's for new hires, but also retention stipends. What have you found in terms of, is there dissonance between stipends and teacher retention? Does it kind of go against the motivational theories? Um, how, what's been the impact of that? So you, you talk about teacher retention, um, you know, in a broad scale nationally, and everybody's like, oh, throw more money at them. And what I learned from interviewing teachers is that money didn't, didn't play a a factor in their decision. Um, It's important to note that the teachers I talked to were paid a very respectable wage. Um, You know, the, this particular district pays their teachers well. Um, And the teachers that I talked to were, you know, the average was like 13 years of experience. So they were pretty far over on the, the pay scale. Um, but they said that it did not matter what amount of money was offered to them. Um, particularly the teacher that said she was, you know, going to quit and be a waitress if it continued the money, she didn't care. Right. Um, it's the working conditions. It's the agency, the relationships, the level of respect. Um, and you can't buy that. That's something you have to create. So I've been looking at um, trends, particularly in Alaska, for how districts have been, you know, using some of this one-time money, pandemic relief, to retain their teachers. Um, It's not unique to the state of Alaska. Many states are are doing it, um, some a little more radically, I think, than Alaska. But Alaska is a very pretty conservative um, state fiscally, and so not every district... um, I would say if I had to rough estimate it, I would say maybe 15% of the districts are offering these uh, one-time incentives to teachers to retain them. Um, And most of them have some kind of policy um, 
you know, like we're not going to give it to you until November or December, you know, to make sure you actually stayed. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, Alaska is historically very difficult to recruit and retain. Um, they've had a recruitment and retention problem for teachers for years. Um, and the pandemic just made it worse. But those, those bonuses are uh, $2,000, um, you know, $1,500. I mean, it's pretty minimal when you think about all the extra work that teachers did during the pandemic, right? They were nurse. Um, mm-hmm. They were, you know, checking temperatures, making sure kids were wearing masks. They were, you know, administering COVID tests. I'm, it's cleaning after every hour. Um, and so the amount of extra duties, uh, it's, you're never going to never going to be able to pay a $2,000 sure for three years Mm of extra work, but it's something, right? It's, it's something. Um, but it, in term, it's not effective. Yeah. Because it, I I think back to salary being a job dissatisfier and this isn't even salary. It's a one-time bonus, but it matches Mm -hmm. obviously with the financial part of the salary. And once you reach a certain threshold, additional money. And you, you just said it yourself, like, sure, it's nice, but it's not everything. Like it's, it's a little bit of extra. I can maybe take a weekend vacation somewhere, you know, not travel real far, but there's something I can get out of this, but probably these people, 13 years, average tenure are beyond the point in which the financial decision is the only decision for them. Younger employees, I'd be curious on the younger employees, maybe first, second, third year, where that's a higher percentage of their overall salary, what impact that made for them. But this comes up time and time again. And, and oftentimes what people, what teachers say is the job's no longer worth it. Meaning the salary, their, what they get in return for their work isn't worth the financial part, the effort that they're putting in. The effort they're putting in, if that was more on the job satisfaction side, the financial part wouldn't be worth it. They would come to school and they would be happy. They would enjoy their work more. They'd be more satisfied, which means you wouldn't in turn have to think about is what I'm doing worth it or not pulling in the financial part. Yep. And when teachers get to that point where they say it's no longer worth it, their dissatisfaction is greater than their satisfaction. Um, and that's when they start looking elsewhere. And we're seeing it now on LinkedIn, the, the number of transitioning teachers that are um, reaching out on LinkedIn and um, some of them a little more desperately than others. I, there are, mm. it, it's insane. And the research shows that it's going to continue, right? Because the initial, the initial knee jerk reaction is for teachers to stay during the times of disaster. They're going to make sure their students make it through. They're going to make sure their colleagues make it through. Um, and then, you know, that burnout sets in. And if nothing changes and that burnout continues, they're going to leave. And the numbers went up last year. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll go up again, and I think they'll continue going up. So what, what are you working on next, Nicole? You, you'd mentioned at the beginning working on kind of researching administrator turnover too. Is that right? Yeah. So everybody, the teachers are getting all of the glory here, right? We're, you know, all of the <laughs> national narrative, the stories that are coming out, and the sensationalized headline is all about um, teacher turnover. But in fact, principal turnover was more drastic in the 2021-2022 year um, then teacher turnover, um, the principal turnover rate doubled, um, and it was at 16% in 2021, 2022, which is the highest it's ever been. And historically it's at four, um, 8% pre pandemic. Um, and then in low income schools, it's up to 25%, which is mm. insane because those are the schools that need, um, 
strong leader, a seasoned leader, a leader that's consistent, and yet one fourth of them are leaving. So I think it'd be interesting mm-hmm. to interview principal, right? So I interviewed teachers for my dissertation, but I think I'd like to interview principals and see why did they stay? Um, I kind of have a sense for why teachers stayed, what what factored into those decisions, but let's talk to principals. Let's see what's motivating them to stay, um, especially when it's arguably a more difficult job now than it was before the pandemic, because on top of the normal things, you've got student behaviors escalating and you've got a teacher retention problem. So now you're you're getting new staff every every year and maybe not even fully staffed. Yeah. I think five percent of all positions uh, nationwide were unfilled at the start of the school year. But I mean, like there's nobody in those five. Like there's nobody there. <laughs> you can't even get a substitute. Who's <laughs> who's in that classroom? <laughs> who's watching those kids? Yeah. And it's the principal, the, the building level administrator that has to take care of it doesn't matter if a staff is, is, or if a room is staffed or yep. not, the kids are going to show up. <laughs> there will be kids in that room, regardless if there's an adult or not. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully you have an adult present because good Lord, the, <laughs> I can, I remember back <laughs> to high school, the things we did when, when the teacher was 10 minutes late, right? Like, do you yeah. imagine? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, the idea of the job satisfaction, job dissatisfaction for administrators is really intriguing. And I'm sure there's a lot of I'm guessing there's a lot of parallels between admins and teachers. Some will be unique, obviously, but that's a really interesting thing to think about. Yeah, I think so. I've been thinking about starting um, a podcast to interview folks about why they're staying in arguably, mm. you know, the toughest um, working conditions that we've maybe ever had in the education field. Um, and so maybe I'll start with principles. You know, it's a perspective yeah. that we haven't really heard much of yet. I love that. Let's go ahead and wrap up the conversation, Nicole. I've got a couple of questions that we typically end with. If you can go back and give yourself advice before you began teaching, and I know that was some years ago, but what would that advice be? Don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, um, teaching has brought the best um, of, brought out the best in me. I mean, it led me to where I'm at today with with my doctorate, um, but I mean, the, the amount of student loans and, that I took out personally, um, just to become a teacher to make nothing, it, it just doesn't make sense. Like, let's take out six figures in student loans to make a $50,000 a year salary. It's, um, it, it was a rough road, but teaching brought, brought me some of the greatest adventure. It took me to Alaska. Um, otherwise, I probably would have never went. Um, so I saw adventure up in Alaska. Um, teaching took me there. Um, Teaching's kind of taken me all over the country. It led me to my dissertation. Uh, but perhaps I would have had an adventurous, more financially successful life had I not chose teaching. So maybe my advice sure. still stands. Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, what's one action or strategy you hope every school leader listening in our conversation takes away with them and, in, and implements in their own building, their own classroom, their own district? I think the key thing to remember is um, that teachers value the relationships and um, agency. And I think agency is kind of what resonates more with, um, with folks right now. And they, teachers want a seat at the table. They want a say in the decisions. Um, they want to be able to carry out their job duties with minimal oversight and professional trust. Um, and that's something that other professions automatically get, right? As, a, as an employee in almost any other profession, 
you are trusted to carry out your job as a professional. Um, and yet teaching is still the one where, you know, it's micromanaged and it's tested to mm -hmm. death. And, um, you know, we just, we need to remember that as we're making adjustments for the future. Yeah. Yeah. Relationships and agency. I definitely have those takeaways. Mm -hmm. uh, what's a celebration that you've recently experienced? Goodness. Um, my, my dissertation. I've <laughs> <Yay. laughs> um, been working on that since 2018. Um, didn't start actually writing the dissertation until the pandemic. Um, and, but that's, um, it's been three years of, of tough um, writing, you know, getting that dissertation done. Um, it changes you as a person. It's hard to explain, but anybody that's been through it knows um, just, you just learn so much about yourself and about research and um, about the writing process. Uh, it was life-changing and I, I enjoyed every minute of it. That's great. And how can people get a hold of you if they want to? Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm on LinkedIn um, and I might be starting a podcast soon, but, <laughs> uh, but you can definitely reach me on LinkedIn. Um, I think my handle is Ensley Nicole um, and I'm sure you'll link it on your page. Yep. Yep. I sure will. Well, I appreciate yep, it. My very inbox much. is open. Perfect. Hey, wonderful conversation, Nicole. Pleasure to meet you today. Uh, and thank you for the work that you're doing to help us understand why teachers are staying in the classroom. Yes. Thank you for having me. It's been a joy. This has been the Employee Experience in Education podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and don't forget to leave a review. Thanks and have a wonderful day.